telling stories from the EGA Clubhouse. All right, welcome everybody. This is Chris Fetner, and we're telling stories at the EGA Clubhouse. Today we have uh, Simon Constable with us. He's the Vice President of Localization for Visual Data Media Services in Burbank. Uh, Welcome, Simon. Thank you very much, Chris, and thank you for having me. Yeah, so tell us, um, a lot of us are familiar with you, the nicest guy in localization, uh, that's what everybody says, <laughs> but uh, for those that, that may not know you, what, uh, what is your background? How did you sort of find yourself in this industry? Well, thank you very much, Chris. Um, I've never been described as the nicest man in the business, so but I shall take it with Great aplomb. Um, well, the background is that I, I, you know, I actually grew up in Hong Kong, so I spent most of my my early life in Asia, and um, I always wanted to be in the entertainment business. You know, when we grew up in Hong Kong, there was there was only four TV channels that's showing my age a little bit there. Uh, two of them were in English, and two of them were in Cantonese, and they only, you know, they were only on for like six or seven hours a day. So I used to watch a load of uh, Japanese content at that time. So shows like Ultraman and Kane and Rider and stuff like that. And that was all dubbed and subtitled. And so, yeah, I've just, you know, I've been wanting to be in the industry just forever and a day. Um, and so, you know, to, to, to further that aim, I went for the degree that seemed the most sensible at the time and ended up doing a theology degree, which uh, wasn't really that applicable, although there is a lot of hope in this business, as you know. Um, so I, yeah, I did my theology degree um, and I tried to get in the industry over in the UK, but I just couldn't, you know, with no experience, I couldn't get a foot in the door. So I ended up moving back to Hong Kong and um, ended up taking a reception job um, in a post-production facility, actually. Um, and they focused on things like corporate videos and stuff like that. Um, anyway, the person who I went and stood in for never came back, which I'm always been eternally grateful for them for never coming back to work. Um, so I spent some time on, on the corporate video side, then moved into broadcast play out. So working with companies like Star TV in Asia and the TNT and Cartoon Network. And then, you know, through, through one sort of twist and fate or another, I ended up working for a company called VidFilm that some of your listeners may, may remember. Um, and I spent some time with them in Hong Kong and then in Singapore for a joint venture um, over there on, with a restoration library. Uh, and then eventually over to to London, where I ended up staying for sort of, you know, a dozen or so years. And during that time, I ended up getting much more into the operations side of things, so much more, um, you know, audio and then moving through the other departments. Then in like the 80s, we were acquired by Technicolor and life completely changed, you know, and we're um, in a small company to a huge corporation. Um, so, and I ended up running their media services business over in the UK. Uh, then I jumped ship in about 2007, worked to work for another company that some of you may remember called Ascent Media. Uh, and there I was responsible for the operations of the, the broadcast TV and film production, um, DVD, digital services. They had film laboratories. They did you know, broadcast play out. So that was a great place to get a big overview of all the different pieces of the, of the content chain. Um, and then when that was kind of wrapping up and that company got um, some of it got sold to Deluxe and some um, to a company called Encompass. Um, the opportunity came to move out to LA and join, rejoin Technicolor, which I did. So moved out in 2011, was with them till they shuttered that business in 2015. And since then, I've been with Visual Data, uh, running the localization business here. 
Yeah. So, wow. That's a, it's a quite a journey. So I have to ask you first, uh, do you speak any Cantonese? That's probably, <laughs> I think a lot of people were going to want to know that. Uh, and if so, what, what can you say in Cantonese? Well, I can say a lot of stuff that's very inappropriate for sure. Um, but actually, you know, the, my, unfortunately the school I went to in Hong Kong didn't really, um, you know, it was running the English school system and they didn't really focus on that. I would say most of the Cantonese that I learned, I actually learned when I was at Star TV because I was surrounded by um, people who actually um, found it quite funny to hear me speak Chinese with an English accent. So uh, they were really helpful. So I speak a little bit of Cantonese, but honestly, I've, you know, I've lived away from Hong Kong for so long that I'd be embarrassed to use it now. Yeah, no worries. Um so, so talk a little bit about visual data. What it, what, what, uh, what, it, what is it that the company does? What, you know, um, I, I, I know you work in localization, but just in general, like a snapshot of the company, um, you know, tell us a little bit about it. Yeah, sure. Well, probably the best way to describe this is that, you know, we offer services to um, content owners and distributors who need to get their content distributed internationally. So that can be, you know, mastering. So working with production companies to make sure that the materials that they're producing, you know, the video, the music and effects tracks, all of those sort of things are in good shape. Um, it can be in servicing the assets. So, um, you know, repackaging um, or conforming assets to get them out to platforms um, or creating new materials as well. And, and that can be, you know, whether that's dubbing or subtitling or, or whether it's uh, restoration, you know, of older titles, which we also do quite a bit of. Um, we also do content management um, and then servicing of the platforms, you know, so encoding, transcoding, packaging, delivery, that kind of stuff. So long story short, it's all the services you require to basically, once content's been made and in the can, or I guess in, in the can shows my age as well. Uh, once it's you know once the content's finished then we help get it distributed worldwide that's sort of our piece yeah and um what what do you suppose what, what's the footprint of visual data uh today uh and and what do you suppose is the sort of secret sauce of the company what are what do you what is something that you guys sort of pride yourself on that maybe differentiates you from other companies well, on the, so on the location side right now, we're preliminary, primarily in three locations. So um, uh, we have an operation in London, uh, in West London, and one here in LA, uh, which is where I'm based. And we also have an Indian facility. Um, so it's, yeah, those are the three that we currently have, and there'll probably be more in the near future, but those are the three key ones right now. In terms of what kind of distinguishes us, um, it may sound a little you know, coy, but the honest truth is that we we believe in being transparent with our customers and treating them well and actually treating each other well as well. You know, that's kind of an important part of it. Um, and that's the thing I've noticed most myself is moving from, um, you know, a big corporation to, um, to what was at the time a smaller company. Um, I think that's the bit I've enjoyed most is that I'm kind of free to get on with, um, things and motivate people and give people opportunities and things like that, that, but I don't have to worry about a lot of red tape. So that's, you know, what, what are some, you know, obviously the industry in general is, is blowing up. It's been talked about a lot that localization is blowing up and there's, uh, there's just a, uh, an unprecedented amount of, of demand. Are you seeing that at visual data? And, you know, yeah, what does yeah. that what does that look like for you guys? 
you know, since we, well, I've been doing this role about six years and, and we've, I mean, it's grown every year. Um, and I, but I would say, you know, just, yeah, when COVID came along, it was kind of an interesting exercise because we didn't know what was going to happen. You know, a lot of the uh, content owners were trying to get, figure out how they were all going to work from home and things quiet for a week or two. So there was a period where we thought, well, you know, are we going to take a big downturn here? And of course, what the industry has experienced is the opposite of that, right? You know, as uh, there were so many, such, such a big push towards streaming that, um, you know, our work, our workload kind of doubled during that time. So it's been a very, it's been a very exciting time. And we have seen a time of great, great growth. Of course, with that comes all of the challenges that, you know, us and all of our competition are experiencing, you know, with um, having trained talent, enough trained talent in all the languages to, to meet the demand. Is it, um, it's been discussed as like sort of the golden age of localization that there's been, there's never been more demand. I believe there were nine streaming platforms that launched in 21. Um, is, is this the year that people will look back in very much the same way that Californians look at 1849 as the gold rush? Um, is this a moment in time that's going to be um, a touchstone for the industry? You know, it feels like it. It, it feels like it. It has been. I mean, particularly when you look at the investment of the originals from all the streaming platforms. But I, I mean, we're not seeing any trends that are letting up. I think next year could. This next year could continue to see huge amounts of growth. You know, and also the other thing is, you know the patterns of ordering localization have changed. You know, it wouldn't be uncommon for us to have handled a couple of languages for a show, you know, two years ago, um, because that's the broadcast deal that the content owner had done. Whereas now a lot of them have their own platforms. So, you know, we might be working on 10 dubs and 25 subtitles all at the same time. You know, it's it's really changed. And, and that's been mostly, you know, catalogs one thing, but now we're seeing this clear pattern of investment in originals, which, you know, is going to continue for the next couple of years for sure. And it, you've seen, you know, so, so obviously visual data was, was part of the kind of 2012 to kind of 2017 sort of Netflix ramp up. Um, I know you were not there at the time for that, but you were, you were certainly part of the industry. Is something similar to that happening right now with Disney and 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 also Peacock and all these other? Is it the same rush? Is it bigger? Is it the same? Uh, how would you how would you say that um, that first sort of run at streaming is different now with all these uh, companies that are coming into the market? I think it's the it's sort of like imagine if you know three or four netflixes were all launching at the same time that's kind of how it is now the patterns are slightly different because each one you know each one of the new streaming platforms i mean although they cover a lot of the same languages they do offer different like some different languages on those platforms too so um but you know each each one of those content owners and platforms has their own way of doing things so for us as a as a you know as as a provider um, there's a lot for us to do and a lot for us to learn. You know, it's a little different than, you know, the thing is with Netflix is it was, you know, very bespoken driven through the tool and, and you know, a lot of these companies have kind of been startup mode. So, yeah, there's a bit of learning to do on all sides, I would say. Yeah. D um, 
do you, is there particular areas that are, you're seeing the most constraints or are there regions and can you speak to those or uh, obviously if it's secret, secret information and then don't share it, but just, just at a macro level, are there, are there things that you can, you, or, or maybe more like pressure points that you're seeing, you know, at, at a very broad level? I mean, dubbing, dubbing is the, is the thing that really stands out. You know, it, the, there used to be a, I mean, a lot of the capacity has been eaten up and you've had the, and we've had the constraints of COVID restrictions right in the middle of the whole thing as well. So that's where, you know, the timelines, the prices have gone up, the timelines have become longer. And, and really the challenge with that is it doesn't really fit the trends that, that the industry needs, which is to do things faster. And um, so, you know, one of the things I am pleased about is the fact that it's not so price, con- the industry is not so price conscious as it been a year or two ago. But on the flip side of that, the fact that stuff needs to get done quicker at a time when there's probably less capacity in the market than there used to be. Is there, I mean, a cynic could say, you know, well, how did you all let this happen? You all are service providers and, you know, why were you not well prepared to, to meet the demands of the industry? Um, And I don't obviously want to blame it on, on any one group, but what, what needs to change so that people, so the industry can be more responsive to the demand? I think, I think we're already seeing some of those changes already. You know, some of the, some of the content owners, um, you know, are, are doing pre-buys for capacity now. So that's a, that's a fairly fundamental. I mean, it's always happened to some extent, but not to the extent we're starting to see it now. And that's kind of, you know, that's a clever way of doing it because that gives the dubbing studios the commitment to know that they can build more rooms and hire more, hire and train more talent. Um, you know, so that's a responsible way to do it, but it's going to take time. You know, that every, you know, most of these podcasts that you're having, you know, that there is a, there is a real lack of, or there's just not enough talent out there. So it's going to take time to train and yeah. get in place. You know? Yeah. There, there's a, a famous story with, with Abraham Lincoln where, you know, some generals were captured by the Confederates and they were captured with their horses and they woke him up in the middle of the night to tell him about this awful news uh, that these generals were, were um, uh, captured. And he said, it's terrible about the horses and nobody could figure it out. And what he, what he was saying was, it's really hard to train a horse, but it's easy to get a general. He said, I can write it. I can sign a piece of paper and get another general. And I, I think that that's, what's really lost is that there's so many people that are integral to the process and it takes time to get them up to speed. You know, building rooms, while capital intensive, can be solved by those pre-buys. But what can't be solved is, you know, getting everybody, you know, up to speed on the work. Um, right. But at least the pre-buys mean give give those companies a reason to to invest in their talent. You know, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Do you do you see any? Is there any technology that's going to come along or anything that you keep an eye on that might have some impact on that? In other words, that might ease capacity or, or um, yeah, I mean, you know, what, what, what technology are you looking at and interested in, I guess? You know, I mean, we, we, we're spending a lot of time at the moment looking at the, the various engines that are out there for subtitling. Um, and again, not because there's a desire to 
you know, drive down costs or reduce the involvement of translators, quite the opposite. It's, it's a way of helping get content out quicker. I mean, honestly, that's what it's all about. But, you know, so we're, we're heavily involved in testing all sorts of technologies to do with that. And some are promising and some are not, you know, as you might imagine, it differs by language. Uh, on the dubbing side, you know, it's, it's a little harder to say, you know, um, some of these technologies out there, like the simulated voices. And I was kind of interested, um, I listened to the last podcast um, with Jack Barreau, you know, and, you know, he makes a good point that you, you can simulate a voice, but can you really kind of simulate the emotions that you need in order to deliver a performance? And so, so for me, I, yeah, I don't really have a good answer for you because I'm not too sure, honestly, yeah. but I mean, we will see disruption of some sort, I'm sure. Yeah, he, 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 may, he did sort of succinctly point out that, you know, this is my voice and it's my voice if it's here and it's here. It's probably one of the best illustrations I've ever heard for that. Um, and I do think that's, you, you know, there's a saying about AI that it's, it's um, very good at the things that, um, that humans are bad at, like big computations and things like that. Yeah. But the things that are easy for us, it's bad at. <laughs> uh, and so it's an interesting, it's an interesting, um, and that certainly changes over time, but, um, but I do think that there's a general demand for, um, you know, just that sort of human performance. Uh, you could argue also that the, the, the human touch of writing a subtitle is pretty important as well. And I think Agreed. that, I think that it's about finding the, the balance, right, between um, you know freeing up the humans to do the absolute most important part of the work, um, yes. and not the you know the can you pass the the water please translation. That's not really where the meat of the story is. It's more the emotional monologue or something like that, where that human input is much more valuable. So yeah, yeah I, I, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is interesting because I hear a lot from from translators where they they're sort of like, you know, what shortage? There's no shortage. Um, it's just it's just that nobody wants to pay us enough. Um, mm. But um, but actually, every, when I talk to everybody in Hollywood and we start talking about real numbers, it's quite the opposite. It's like so glaringly obvious that there's X amount of resources and Y amount of demand. Um, yeah. and, and it's just really not there. Um, are you seeing, are you seeing anything happening with supply and demand and that that's impacting pricing? Um, you know, certain territories have become more expensive, um, you know, particularly around, um, some of the figs, um, as the talent gets busy on projects, they can pick and choose, you know, a little more, which is totally understandable. Um, but yeah, in, yeah, not much outside of that, honestly. Yeah. What are what are some areas of the business that you're really excited by? You know, what are some things that you you think about and they get you, you know, intellectually stimulated and interested in 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 what the world's doing? Well, for me personally, it's I'm really excited about getting more involved with dubbing, you know. Um, visual data, one of, you know, we took on some new investors uh, about a year ago, um, a company called Endeavor, who have been incredibly supportive of, of us. And um, one of our desires is to get more into um, the dubbing studios. Because, and, and personally, I'm just really excited by that. You know, 
this is a, a chance for me to to learn a lot more but also as as a company you know the expectations from the content owners are, now are that we can handle a project you know from beginning to end you know right from video mastering you know talking to production companies all the way to working with creatives and delivering dubs and subtitles and packaging and all that sort of stuff so it's it's a natural evolution for the company. Personally, I'm just very excited because I, I I just find dubbing fascinating. And what I really like about it is the fact that it's different in every country. And that just, you know, it's just yeah, I just find it really it really interesting. So so obviously this is the EGA. What what do you think the EGA should be working on? What as you s- sort of look at the landscape, you know, what are things that you think are important for for us as an organization to be thinking about, and you're actually on one of the committees, uh, one of the more important committees uh, in terms of like, I think impact to the industry, not they're all important, but, but certainly one that's close to my heart. What, what are some things that you think are um, opportunities for us as a, as a, as an industry? Well, I think your original, your original idea was to, which I very much support was to, educate people educate the people who are buying the services from us um, and and gather feedback from groups that have previously been voiceless like you know the um, some of the work we've been doing with the translators to find out what's going on in their world you know so I, I think telling the story of why this is so important you know why you know the fact that we're you know it allows company content owners to be able to sell their, their product worldwide and gain subscribers but the quality is a huge part of that. And, you know, why, but why is it? Why is it commercially important to them? And I think, you know, being able to show some data against some of that stuff is really fascinating and helpful for the industry. Not just so that we can try and avoid price pressures in the future, but so that people really understand that there's a value to, to what we do. Um, and that will help us support everybody who we work with in the industry. That's my feeling. And I have a personal pet peeve that I'd love to share as well. Sure, please. Okay. So this is not related. This is Simon talking. This is not, um, this is not visual data. But I have a, I have a real bugbear with um, poor quality um, English captions and subtitles. And I'm just going to have it out here because you've given me a platform to do this. So thank <laughs> okay. You. So, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily speak for, um, you know, the, the deaf community. They, they, you know, their requirements for captions and SDH subtitles. Um, but I, I can represent perhaps a little bit um, due to some experiences in my family, the need for um, people who have cognitive or processing or, or mental health issues to be able to actually follow stories by reading those subtitles and captions. Um, so it's something I feel quite passionately about. But I see, you know, I watch a lot of TV and I see just some awful captions on, you know, on some really high-end streamers, high-end broadcasters. And the, the truth is you can go out there and you can buy captions, you know, for $1.25 or you can buy captions for $7. And I'm not saying quality necessarily goes with one of those two, but the reality is that there's a lot of really bad captions out there. And I think it's important that, um, if anyone will listen to this and, I, you know, and they take one takeaway, invest in your captions and trust, you know, invest in a good company or a person to, to make your captions or your subtitles for you, because um, it will make such a difference to how your content is received by um, those who are perhaps don't have a bigger voice. So, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. Obviously I, I think it, it, it touches on a couple things. One is, you know, captions are not necessarily just consumed by 
the hard of hearing or, or the hearing impaired community, but actually there's a, a whole body of constituents that, that require those, those captions to enjoy the content. Um, that's maybe not obvious. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really important thing. And even, even there's been a lot of studies on children, you know, learning to read faster if they have captions on and things like that. And there's actually uh, an organization in the UK, I think it's called Turn On The Captions, I believe is the name, uh, but they, um, they, they are, are strong advocates for quality captions. So I think it's, um, it's a great point. I also think that captions co- can so often be the foundation for other workflows. And so yeah, invest, in, investing in them to then make other workflows, uh, you know, better quality uh, down, downstream is, is also a thing. So, um, so it's a good point to end on, Simon. I want to thank you, uh, <laughs> thank you know, you. For, for joining us. And uh, we will no doubt ask you back at some point to, to dive deeper on other topics. But, um, you know, best of luck in the dubbing uh, as, you. You, as you get, get more into it. And um, I hope that you can um, have some time off to, to hang out and just enjoy life uh, when you're not cramming for everybody uh, launching their services all around the world. That's great. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity, Chris. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Telling Stories from the Clubhouse. Join us next week as we discuss more topics and tales about sharing stories with the world.